And so the challenge is how do you manage this finite system, uh, this wilderness experience, if you will, when you have more and more people using it. But 100 years ago or 110 years ago, the, the focus was actually building the system and getting people out there and having them connect in some meaningful way to the outdoors. Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. Going for a hike. Alex Kaufman, Wintry Mix, episode 63. Mike DeBonis is the executive director of the Green Mountain Club. You know, the folks that take care of the long trail and most of the trails that connect to it. Wintry Mix is locals and visitors, half skiing, half not skiing. My email is alex at wintrymixcast.com. The pod voicemail is 802-560-5003. Five-star ratings and reviews help the pod grow, and I'll owe you a beer in the wild. If you'd like to step up from Freeloader, visit patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to toss me a dollar that I'm turning around and donating locally on behalf of the pod listeners once we hit 200. Stand by for the goods. Wintry Mix podcast is supported by the town and country on the mountain road in Stowe. Under new ownership this season, the entirely remodeled bar and restaurant needs to be on your Opre ski hit list. Yes, you can enjoy Opre without your kids driving you nuts thanks to their massive family room. Did I mention the prices? You'll like them. Fresh oysters often. I'll see you at the town and country. Restaurant parking is out in the back. Are you thinking lodging? want to be able to park right next to your brand new room, the skiers understand why that's helpful. Don't hand your keys to some valet for him to hide your car. Just get to townandcountrystow.com. Mike DeBonis, thank you for coming by. I hear you're with the Green Mountain Club. What do you think of the room you're sitting in? I, I really like it. It's kind of warm on a rainy day. It feels very cozy, very nest-like. Uh, it's great. How did you end up here? I didn't come after you. You guys pinged me, but it wasn't you. No, it was uh, Kristen McLean who works in my office. She's our memberships and, membership and communications coordinator. and uh, We're always trying to get word out about the Green Mountain Club and what we're up to. And a lot of folks use the trail in the winter, so we figured this is a great opportunity to share our story and get some information out there. Does anybody in the building listen to the pod? Yeah, Kristen does. All right, good. Yeah. We don't have her. We'll get her later. We've got you here today. She clued me in on a few, not just, okay, you're the executive director. We'll go through that rigmarole a little bit down the line. What brought you to the professional world of trails? I came in through, through forestry. So I'm a forester. Yeah, I went to school for forestry, grew up here. So my background was in Boy Scouts, and that was kind of my first exposure. But 
I worked in kind of the urban and community forestry world, so the people side of forestry. And it's a lot about how people connect to the outdoors, how they connect to their natural world and what they value, uh, what they get out of it, kind of the experiences they have. And and it's the same thing with trails. And uh, I was living in New Mexico, loving it out there. And the job opened up uh, for ED of the Green Mountain Club. And having grown up in Vermont, it was always sort of this dream. You know, you joke about it with your wife, like, oh, one day, you know, we'll move back to Vermont and I'll be the ED of the Green Mountain Club. Ha, ha, ha. And then the job opened up and applied for it and got it. Didn't think I'd ever get another chance and uh, kind of packed up everything and, and came back. And so I came into trails through natural resource management and forestry, but it's, it's really just the people. It's how people relate to the land and whether you're cutting down trees or building trail or, you know, running a area, it's all the same thing. Natural resource management, forestry, folks who didn't major in that, have a hard time knowing what that's like while you're going to school for it. So where did you go to school for it? And what is that actually like to someone who's never really considered it? So I went to uh, Johnson State uh, here in Vermont for my undergrad and uh, kicked around for uh, a number of years doing a, a variety of things. I did environmental consulting. I was a park manager and I uh, did a little stint in the Peace Corps uh, and then went to graduate school in New Haven at Yale. They have one of the oldest forestry schools in the nation. You went to Yale for forestry? Yes. That's a bit of a juxtaposition in my own brain, at least. Yeah, you don't think of Yale for forestry, but they they have the oldest running forestry school in the nation. And it has a great program. They pull in students nationally and internationally, and they have broadened it over the years, so it's more forestry and environmental studies. But mine was very practical. We studied forest management, and I worked on a forest in Connecticut uh, doing timber harvests and writing management plans and uh, working with landowners. And so it was, it was a great introduction to the world of, of managing trees. Because it's timely then, help me have a better understanding of what just happened in California. Yeah, so I, I'd worked probably you know, eight or nine years in New Mexico, and it's a very different forest type than we have here. And we're in a hardwood, mixed hardwood, uh, softwood forest here. There's certainly fires in the Northeast, but, but nothing like you see out West. And so you have, you have forests that are, are naturally prone to fire. And then through the type of management or lack of management, those forests might be in a, a condition where they are uh, not safe or not sustainable and maybe more prone to fire. And I think that's a large part of what you're seeing is the condition of the forest is more prone to fire than maybe it was in the past due to management. And then you could probably lump on climate change and changing weather patterns and the frequency of, of fire events are, are more. And you add that together and it's a pretty tough combination. And, you know, I just, my heart goes out for all the folks that lost their homes and, and lives. It's really tragic. And, and I think you see these areas where they call it the wild and urban interface, where you've got people living in the woods and, you know, you can see why it's beautiful. You want to be right there in the trees, but you're also vulnerable because you're right there in the trees. And when a fire goes through, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, not a lot of room for escape and the houses are really at risk. And I think as a news consumer and being fairly geographically removed from it, you know, we see the, the politics and 
the tweets and whatever, probably pretty detached from the reality of, you know, how to mitigate or how to build more responsibly uh, as you're just watching it with some knowledge to, to draw from. What should those communities be doing differently, if anything, or is it just kind of bound to happen because we put humans there? Yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely some things that can be done from a management perspective. I think in some of these large mega fires that you see, uh, some of it's climate driven, some of it's resource driven, and and so some of it's you know a matter of um, you know matter of circumstance. You know, I don't think you're going to solve the problem just by you know clearing brush around your house. I mean, it's part of the solution, but it's it's how people build, it's where they build, it's how you maintain the forest, it's uh, points of egress and egress or ingress and egress. It's how emergency vehicles can get in. And, uh, it's, you know, it's almost more of a planning issue, uh, than just a natural resource management issue. So even though it's not about forest fires, probably some parallels with what you do now, egress, access, all those sorts of land planner words that I don't have on the tip of my tongue, but you do. <laughs> so you've brought what from your forestry background to what you're doing now uh, with the Green Mountain Club? Yeah, you know, the, the Green Mountain Club's been around since 1910. And the mission in 1910 was to connect people to the outdoors and make the mountains of Vermont uh, play a larger role in the life of the people. And it's really the same mission today. You know, back then, a lot of folks were in the Adirondacks and they were in the White Mountains and the Green Mountains weren't getting as much attention. So the folks that founded the Green Mountain Club were like, hey, you know, a long distance hiking trail along the spine of the Green Mountains, that's a great way to sell Vermont and build infrastructure and, and bring, uh, bring folks in, in dollars into the state. Was that the origin of it? Basically marketing versus the white and Adirondacks to get folks to come to Vermont, let's build this trail and it'll do that? Yeah, it was a big part of it was yeah, having people connect to the outdoors, but you really, there was the selling of Vermont and having people appreciate the mountains and then get out there. And, you know, we think about today, you know, you go around and, and kind of where we are in the studio, I mean, there's hiking trails just, you know, a stone's throw away from the house. And and we're blessed with that in, in Vermont. But in 1910, it wasn't the case. You didn't have great trails up on the high peaks that we have now. There weren't great trails up Mansfield or uh, Camel's Hump or Killington. And the founders of the Green Mountain Club saw that as a, a weakness or a liability. And so building that infrastructure, hiking trails, uh, overnight sites, you know, having some semblance of hospitality so folks could go, go out and have a good experience was was this way of kind of making the Vermont mountains more important and then giving people a chance to get out there. And it, it seems kind of counterintuitive today because one of the things we are, one of the challenges we're faced with is we have a ton of people on the trails, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and more and more every year. And so the challenge is how do you manage this finite system uh, this wilderness experience, if you will, when you have more and more people using it. But 100 years ago or 110 years ago, the, the focus was actually building the system and getting people out there and having them connect in some meaningful way to the outdoors. Almost sounds like maybe managing growth is more of your challenge than growth. Is that accurate? Or I mean, how would you put it? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's the long trail is a free open system, so you don't need a lift ticket to go out there. It's one of the beautiful things about it. You can, if you decide right now to go out and hike on the long trail, you can go do it. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to pay anybody. You can just go and do it and have a good time. And the, the fact that it's this free open system is what makes it 
special and, and really what makes it beautiful in a lot of ways. But because it's this free open system, it use is kind of uncontrolled. Uh, it, it really is that use is dependent on the, the whims of the people. And so because of that, you have uh, a large number of people that use the trail resource, but a very small amount of people actually maintain the trail resource. So you're talking maybe 5% of the total user group actually are members, pay money every year through donations or membership, or actually out there, you know, built, putting in sweat equity, maintaining trails, cutting blowdowns, that sort of thing. That membership figure is how many? Uh, it's about a little less than 10,000. And it's been pretty flat, I would say, over the last 10 years. Uh, membership in organizations like the club, uh, I think, is kind of flat or declining. And it's probably uh, that way with, with other organizations. And, but use is going up. So I think that's one of our biggest challenges and probably biggest opportunities. You have this user base out there that loves the trail, is using the trail, has some connection to it, but they're not necessarily a card-carrying member of the Green Mountain Club or out there on weekends doing volunteer work. How do I know when I'm out there if I'm on a trail that has anything to do with the Green Mountain Club or doesn't? Is it long trail only or is it long trail and many others? It's long trail and many others. So there's about 500, a little more than 500 miles of total trail in the state. So the long trail, it's the easiest one to envision in your brain. It's across the, the crest of the Green Mountains from Massachusetts to Canada, it hits all the major peaks. But then, you know, thinking of it as a river, if that's the main river, there's all these tributaries off the side. So all the feeder trails, all the side trails, and you know, there's a couple hundred miles of side trails that, that feed into that. You know, every road crossing, you know, all the water drainages, there's these side trails on both the east and the west that feed into the system. And that comprises the, the majority of the long trail system. And then for the southern half of the long trail, it coincides with the Appalachian Trail, which is a couple thousand miles, runs from Georgia to Maine. But it coincides for a portion in Vermont. And then once you hit Killington, it doglegs east and then heads to New Hampshire and then, then on to Maine. And so we manage the Appalachian Trail in the state as well. And then there's a cluster of trails that exist and are developing up in the Northeast Kingdom, uh, part of the old champion lands that were conserved a few years back. And... Uh, those are a mix of ownerships on state land and, and private timberland. And uh, there's trails being developed up there that we, we help manage. How does that end up in your lap? Strategic decision. Uh, at the time, uh, these lands are going into public ownership. Definitely not part of the long trail. It's up in the quiet corner of the Northeast Kingdom. And the Green Mountain Club at the time was, was in a position to provide some leadership and support. We also had a couple of rental cabins up there that we've been operating for years. And so we had a, a toehold there. We had a local section uh, of volunteers that were doing some trail work. And so it was a, a natural fit, but it was a bit, you know, a bit of a stretch in the sense that it was not part of the traditional long trail. Uh, but it, it's been really cool because it's one of the first places that I can think of where you actually have new hiking trail being built, like new long distance hiking trail being built. And this is up in Island Pond. And so there's a lot of things going on up there. You know, motorized recreation is really big. Uh, you're close to Canada, you're close to New Hampshire, and you have a, a history of you know, traditional timber harvesting and, and forest management. And as that kind of goes away, as those markets change, you know, the role of recreation, feeding in, filling that gap 
you know, it's really cool to see how is that going to, how is that going to fill the gap? What role is it going to play? How big can it get? And uh, hiking is just one, one small part of it. So if that was a strategic decision to get involved in that area of Vermont with that opportunity, I would assume your organization or every organization has to say no sometimes, has to say, mm, no, we're not going to do that. I mean, what are some examples of things where maybe there's been an opportunity and there's been some consideration and then declined? There's always those kind of really tempting uh, opportunities. And I think one thing that's characterized the Green Mountain Club over its history, uh, 100 plus years, is that it's been pretty consistent and has done a pretty good job of staying close to its core mission. It It's the long trail. And it's hiking and stay focused on that. And by and large, it really has stayed focused on, on hiking. Uh, I think one of the things that is out there right now that is a growth opportunity and we have participated in it a little bit is the growth of huts in Vermont and, and backcountry overnight lodging uh, opportunities. And the club maintains a few overnight camps or huts in Vermont, we have a couple in Bolton that are owned by the state of Vermont that we manage, and then we have a couple up in the Northeast Kingdom. And so I think that's a good example of something that, uh, you know, do we expand into do more of those things, or do we really limit it to areas where we have a hiking trail presence and, and stay, core, stay close to our mission? The, but the demand is, is out there. I mean, I think people are connecting to the outdoors in different ways and definitely different than when I was a kid. And not everyone's looking for a long distance hiking experience. Not everyone wants to put on a backpack and go uh, slog around the woods for, for a week or a weekend. Some people do, a lot of people do, but some people want a different experience and being able to go to a backcountry hut or a camp with your family, have a wood stove, a mile in, you know, ski right out the door is pretty attractive. It's a nice gateway into an outdoor experience. And then, you know, who knows what could grow from that. How do you physically get the equipment? Because maintaining these trails, and I'm thinking like some of the bridges, yeah. um, and you mentioned the cabins, how much stuff are people putting on their back and carrying it for how far, yourself included? Almost everything is carried on, on the back. So I would say all of the maintenance, you know, hand tools, things like that, those are carried in by mostly volunteers. So there's a core of you know, a thousand volunteers out there. We have 14 chapters and they're each responsible for a particular portion of trail. And so they're out there clearing water bars, cutting blowdowns, uh, those sorts of things. And then anything bigger, uh, like if you're carrying in wood for you know, little bog bridging steps that you put in wet areas or fixing bridges, you know, those you'll have to carry in, or sometimes if you're near a road, you could maybe take it in with a truck or an ATV and then haul it in. And then the big stuff, so a building. If you're going to repair a, a backcountry building on the long trail or some bringing heavy equipment, you need to use a helicopter, and those are exceptionally expensive. But do you guys call those in sometimes? We do. A couple of years ago, we worked on Taft Lodge on Mount Mansfield. It's one of the oldest shelters on the system. It's almost 100 years old. And it's a log structure. And so some of the logs were getting rotted. You know, it's a ton of snow up there. And in the winter, you go up there and the whole thing's almost buried under snow. And so these logs are exposed to snow and uh, you can't really harvest the wood off the mountain anymore. It just doesn't exist and or it would be really hard to get to. So if you're going to fix shelters like that, you've got to bring stuff in uh, via helicopter. 
So it really jacks up the cost of you know, what would normally be a pretty routine backcountry or a routine building project. Uh, when you're when you're doing it on the long trail in the backcountry, uh, and you have to meet historic preservation standards, and you can't get there with a truck, it gets really expensive. So you don't want to do those too often. If I was Phil Scott and I had a magic button, what would you tell me to do right now that would help you out? Oh, I would put more money into stewardship. Yeah, I think you look at this great recreation resource we have in the state. I mean, we've got amazing hiking trails. Backcountry skiing is amazing. Mountain bike trails uh, are, are exploding. I remember I was on the first wave of, of mountain biking you know, based on my age in, in the 80s. And uh, I remember racing at, at Bolton Valley and then kind of mountain biking kind of quieted down. And now it's booming again and trail development is booming. So you have volunteers that are building trails and maintaining trails and and where the real gap is is the is the funding for for long-term stewardship and so it's it's infrastructure it's the same as as roads and, and buildings and you have to make investments in infrastructure in our highways and towns and i think we have to make investments in infrastructure for our trails too uh, there's always a role for volunteers uh, but you know any of the big work all the big construction projects, all that needs to be done with, with pro crews and, um, and, and, and resources. And so having more money going to stewardship and having a mechanism to, to do that sustainably would be great. So Phil, if you're listening, uh, that would be wonderful. You'd ask Phil for money. Yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> um, the visitor center in Waterbury Center. Why is it in Waterbury Center? Are we lucky or was there a thing that caused it to be there? Well, it wasn't always there. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, the headquarters was down in Rutland. And uh, that in the Green Mountain Club's been around since 1910, but it has only had professional staff since the 70s. And uh, it really has grown quite a bit in the last uh, 30, 40, 50 years. So it, it had a headquarters down in, in Rutland, and then it moved to Montpelier to be closer to the, the seat of power. And then the club... I think decided that it needed a permanent home and the route 100 corridor is great. It's very close to the long trail, you know, close to the interstate uh, near Stowe. And, and so it was a strategic location, uh, one, because it was a close to the resource, but also could be a place that people could stop by on their way through to learn about hiking and learn about the club. So it's almost Christmas when we're having this conversation, people have been hearing it in January from a cyclical perspective. What is the club working on now? Obviously, you're always collecting donations or collecting memberships. From a planning perspective, what time of year are you working on right now? How far forward is kind of your planning curve? We're working on the 2019-2020 field seasons. So we're, we're not doing any trail work this time of year. Uh, this time of year, we focus on fundraising and, and reporting, but uh, raising money to field crews in, in 2019. So the field season starts uh, in May. And so we're starting our hiring right now. So we have to have a pretty clear understanding of what our budget's going to be, what we can fund so we can start hiring people. And so we, we try to be at least one to two cycles ahead. So we're doing some of the pre-planning, some of the field work, uh, some of the fundraising for 2020 so we can get that in place by the end of next field season. So in the trail world, you're always a, a year or two ahead with, with fundraising and, and planning. And, and some of the work that you do, 
doesn't require a permit. Uh, it's just maintenance and you can go out and, and fix something. But a lot of the work requires a permit, uh, re- requires specialist approval. Uh, the Green Mount Club d- doesn't own much of the land that the Long Trail exists on. There's a little bit that we own. So most of the land is owned by someone else. So mostly the state, the Forest Service, uh, towns, uh, universities. And so you have to always be working with landowners to get their buy-in and approval. And it really is a cooperative partnership to make the whole thing work. And uh, as things become more complex, the the time frame for getting projects done gets longer and longer. So something that you may have been able to to plan and, and execute in, in months is now years, especially for the more complex projects. You mentioned early on that you know, the amount of members is some 5% of total users or yeah. maybe less or some, somewhere in that neighborhood. The users. Let's talk about the users. Let's let you vent at the users, okay? <laughs> There's a few things that you wish users would just stop doing. Tell them. Yeah. Well, I love all the users. You know, put that out there. Of it course. Is, it, is, it is the holidays. Uh, uh, the users make the system go around, but... So I'm a I'm a long distance hiker too, and uh, I have hiked the long trail recently. And so I think one of the things that drives me nuts is you'll spend all this time and money building a particular trail feature. So let's envision in your mind this really beautiful, natural looking set of rock steps, and the trail user will look at that and say, "Ugh, those are steps. I'm I'm not doing that. I'm just going to walk around it." <laughs> and so these are these user-defined trails that uh, you know they're get, folks would typically follow the path of of least resistance, and uh, so sometimes you'll have these really well-built trail features, rock steps or uh, bog bridging, wood bridging in wet areas, and they just don't get used because they maybe weren't put in the right place, or uh, the hikers look at that as an extra step and kind of move around it. Okay, so stay where designed, stay on the path, don't go around that tree just because you can. Yeah. The other thing is if folks have been up on the high peaks, Vermont actually has some small populations of alpine plants. Really cool. You have to go way further north in Canada to see the the same plant populations. Mount Mansell has the most, but Camel's Hump has some, and Mount Abraham has some as well. And so when you go up and do summit duty, your job is to educate the public, uh, be there to provide information, and to help people make good decisions about where they're going to sit and have their lunch. And so the, the Green Mountain Club staff, you know, we're not police, you know, we're just uh, field staff or volunteers. And so it's all this kind of passive light touch approach. And, and the, the idea is that people don't want to go up and they're not planning to do anything wrong. They want to have a good experience. And so we try to use uh, all instances as a teachable moment. So if someone is up there with their dog Fluffy and they are sitting down on the tundra having lunch because it's comfortable, you know, you want to go up and talk to them about, you know, why they might want to move and how rare those plants are and and what we're trying to do uh, as an organization to protect the resource while still giving people a chance to, to have a good experience. But, you know, on some busy summer days, uh, the summits of Camel's Hump and Mansfield are jammed. I mean, you've got tons of people up there. So it's, it's tough. Uh, it's, it's kind of the blessing and the curse of it. You have all this interest in, in people out there. So you're, you are achieving the mission. You are connecting people to the outdoors, but there's also a resource impact. And so we, we put staff up there uh, during the summer 
to interact with hikers. And, and the research has shown that it's actually had a positive impact. We've been able to maintain those fragile ecosystems despite in, increased use. And, um, and that's been good. I won't ask for the example, but I know there is an example of some caretaker at the top asking somebody not to walk on the plants and the person saying, F you, I'm going to walk on the plants <laughs> and then it escalating. I'm sure that's happened. Just, you don't need to tell me about it. Give me a yes or a no. How's that happen? Well, we have training. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's an art, you know, it, we go to school or you go to school for natural resource management, but this is people management and it's a big part of the job. How to tell people nicely not to be a moron. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, I think people... They want to do the right thing. I mean, no one, no one's going up there to uh, purposely damage the the plants. I mean, everyone wants to have a good experience, and so the challenge is make sure they still have a good experience, but give them the tools, give them the information to make better choices in the future. And if you do that, then you've really connected to them. And we found that if you go up there with a you know the iron stick and uh, and make people feel bad or um, interact in a negative way, then you've lost folks. You've, you, you haven't connected. And I would say the club's done a really nice job over the years of really taking a passive approach to educating folks. And some of that's one-on-one interactions, but uh, other ways it's with signage. You know, you don't want to plaster the mountain with signage, but having some signage around to let people know. And then if you go up on the peaks, you'll see white cotton string that marks the side of the trail. And it's just sort of a light approach to let you know, like, Hey, this is the pathway, but you're not building a wall or you know, rock cairns or something to, uh, to block folks, but it's, it's still giving people the information to make a good decision. You mentioned the signage. I don't know if you see this question coming, but here you go. What is the font on your signage? Ooh, that's a great question. I don't think I know the answer to that. It's, it would be popular. You, if, if it wasn't publicly available, you could sell it. Yeah. Yeah, I should know that. Uh, ill-prepared. But yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. But it's the same. You have good font consistency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We uh, we actually have uh, one gentleman who makes all of our signs. And one interesting thing is all the signs pretty much throughout history have been made by either the state of Vermont or by volunteers. And so we have these volunteer sign makers. And through time, they they work in their period of time. And we have a gentleman now who makes the majority of our signs and he has his own style. The signs look a particular way. The font is a particular font and uh, the way that he carves in the, the numbers and the letters is done in a particular way. And they all kind of have their own look, feel and, and handshake to them. All right. We're going to end with a lightning round. You ready? Sure. What's a mountain you've never climbed, but it's next on your list. Uh, Denali is uh, the big mountain on my list. What pizza topping do you hate the most? Uh, olives. If you only got to eat one Ben and Jerry's flavor the rest of your life. Uh, Half-baked, I think, is the one that I would go with. You've hiked the AT, correct? I have. Favorite AT state, not Vermont? New Jersey. Wow. Elaborate. Oh, New Jersey doesn't get enough credit. Uh, it, it's one of the most beautiful stretches of the AT. You go on these, these, these kind of high ridges, uh, overlooking the valley and, uh, it was just a beautiful stretch of trail. Uh, the weather was great. Uh, you can get really good food at every road crossing. Like there's, you can get like an Italian sub, like at almost every road crossing. The, the, the proximity of food is really good in New Jersey. And as an AT hiker, that's pretty important. If you had one catchphrase that you use, but you wish you could stop using, what would it be? Uh, 
I say a lot of times, like, where is your brain at? Um, and I probably should stop doing that. <laughs> uh, what percent milk fat is in your fridge? 2%. Always been a 2% guy? No, whole milk. Grew up in Vermont. Whole milk was the way to go. And other than being the ED of the Green Mountain Club, uh, what are you up to in Waterbury these days? I do a lot of running. Uh, love getting outside and uh, Mad River Valley where I live is a great place to get out and, and run and um, also do a little backcountry skiing. And we're fortunate that there's lots of good places to go early in the morning. So I'm definitely a dawn patrol guy. Uh, try to get out and uh, get at least some something in before I go to work. And especially this time of year, try to do something once a week or so. Well, let's end on this then. What's the winter scope of the use of your trails? Is it a lot? Do you engage on that topic at all? Or because it's kind of lower impact, is it not really something that you need to think about? No, we definitely need to think about it. The the founders of the Green Mountain Club and the Long Trail made a decision that they weren't going to manage the trail for, for winter use. But it definitely is used for, for winter use. And the club's always been pro winter use. And you'll... You know, I was just looking at the numbers today, and you're probably looking at five to ten percent of the usage of what it is in the summer. So it does drop, but there's use in every single month, and folks are are climbing Camel's Hump all throughout the year in Mansfield. And so the trail, while it's not designed or maintained for winter use, it's definitely usable in the winter. It's just a lot harder, and the blazes are white. Uh, sometimes the blazes are are under snow and it's a totally different experience. I was out at Burnt Rock uh, the other weekend, and I've I probably hiked that particular section of trail a dozen times in the last two years, and I lost the trail. And I'm like, I can't believe this. I'm the ED of the Green Mountain Club. Yeah, you're not supposed to lose the I'm trail. Like, I hope no one sees me. And uh, I just I couldn't find it because all the trees were windblown, so snow was over everything. And I'm just wandering around in circles, and I'm like, okay, it's time to go home. <laughs> I'll, I'll go up another day. But that's that's kind of winter hiking in Vermont. Yeah, it makes sense. Thanks for coming by, Mike. Hey, my pleasure. Really appreciate it. And it's rant time. Windhold. Nothing new here, and nothing resorts can really do about it. But what if there was something they could do with it. Here we go. Ready? When large swaths of the mountain are shut down due to wind, the cafeterias and restaurants cut their prices on food and or the bar does the same on beer just during the wind holds. Whatever mountain makes that a policy would be instantly famous. Not sure how you pull it off logistically, but my God, someone make an attempt. End of rant. So that was episode 63. Next up will be a chat with Christine Keeney about ski town housing issues. Until then, dig into the archive. I posted a note on the pod Facebook page that is a guide to the entire thing. Remember, you can call 802-560-5003 to leave a question or a rant or whatever. 
or hit me up via email at alex at wintrymixcast.com. Also, reminder that I'm pooling our spare change to donate to local causes. It's going to be fun when we cut our first check on behalf of the listeners of the Wintry Mix podcast. Patreon.com slash wintrymixcast to chuck a buck. And you'll get a sticker when they finally get finished. A heads up that you'll now see some Wintry Mix and or Xander bass depth on vtskiandride.com. We're helping each other out a little bit. Sign up for free digital subscriptions to Vermont Ski and Ride magazine at vtskiandride.com and look for print copies at your local outdoor retailer, bars, coffee shops, and more. Follow on Insta or Twitter at Wintry Mixcast, or better yet, share an episode and tell a pal about the pod if they've been missing out. Goodbye. What didn't I ask you about? The thing that I'm most excited about uh, when I get up in the morning and, and go to work. Uh, I think that we talked a lot about people, but the energy that you see with the folks that are working for the club or that are out on the trail is is amazing. I think the the energy and just the interest in the outdoors is, I think, greater than I've, I've ever seen it. And uh, I think people really value the landscape that we have here and, and hiking is a, is a great gateway. And so I, I think the fact that we're in a state where we have such committed people and people connect to the outdoors in different ways, it's just a real blessing, uh, to be part of that. And I think it's probably the thing that's kept the club going and probably the thing that's going to keep us going in the future.